Hey everyone, welcome. You're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. I'm Avi Klein, a psychotherapist, and my co-host is Sam Graham Felsen, the novelist. And each week we answer one of your questions, and we do it with the help of a guest. And our guest this week, I'm very pleased, is Eamon Ismail from Slate. I'm going to read you his bio. Eamon is an award-winning podcast host, video editor, photographer, and writer at Slate, whose work focuses on identity and religion. He wrote and produced Who's Afraid of Eamon Ismail, a video series that moves beyond stereotypes of both American Muslims and their self-professed adversaries, finding hope and fault in both. He currently hosts Man Up, a weekly interview podcast about men, relationships, family, race, and sex. And I wholeheartedly endorse Eamon the person and uh, his video series and the podcast. You should check all of it out. I think you'll learn a lot from it. And I hope you enjoy this interview. Have your um, have your parents listened to the podcast yet? I'm afraid that they would actually. I've been like, going out of my way to make sure they don't even know that I'm doing a podcast. Really? So before I was doing the podcast, I was doing the video series. Yeah. yeah. And they had so many opinions about the video series, mostly really? negative. Really? Um, they're so critical. They they really wanted me to do like PR for Muslims. They were like, why don't uh-huh. you talk about the good ones? Uh, yeah. So something like this where I'm really like digging into my history. Yeah. Trying to mine for trauma so that I can like openly discuss it and discuss other people's traumas. She, I can imagine my mom saying, Hey, man, why are you doing that? Why not talk about all the good food that I made you? Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I can imagine her thinking, thinking in her head, Oh, Eamon's doing this again. He's just uh-huh. airing our dirty laundry. Right, right, right. Yeah. I was worried about my parents reading my novel because. Well, A, it's about like bad Jews, but they're not embarrassed by that because uh, they're not like religious anyway. The, wor- the thing I was worried about is that I grew up in, I guess, what would now be considered a super woke family. Like my family was incredibly liberal, but also like Bernie Sanders type people. Like my parents even lived on, on a commune in Vermont and like what? probably even knew Bernie because like, That's you amazing. know, so they, they and, um, and, and my book is about being a white kid like the only white kid at a, at a mostly black public school, which is based on my experience. But I was worried that they, that, um, just that, that, I mean, basically I was pretty raw about like (laughs) the downsides of, uh, growing up in a super, you know, liberal Mm -hmm. woke family, you know, just cause obviously the white kid in the book gets, gets fucked with a lot. Right. And I was worried that like, they were going to be like pissed at me for like making their whole thing look bad. But I was I was actually pleasantly surprised. They oh, they yeah. liked it. I was so scared though. Like, um, and by the way, I haven't even told them that. We're, have you told your parents that we're doing this podcast? Yeah, but they're kind of, <laughs> they don't even understand it really. So they're like, okay, yeah, like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Anyway, we usually like to start out just like asking um, before getting into your career and stuff, just yeah. like a little bit about um, you know how you came up. And um, I know that from the show, which which I'm a fan of, I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. Um, I appreciate that. That uh, you're from Newark. Were you born in Newark? or? Um... So technically I was born in Jersey City, okay. uh, right on the Palisades, so with a view of the city probably. But then when I was maybe three or four, we moved to Newark um, because at that time Newark was safer than Jersey City. Now it's kind of like switched. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was... Interesting, because I s- still lived in Newark for almost my entire life, but I was still going to school in Jersey City. Mm. So I was kind of uh, in between, like, bridge and tunnel between Newark and Jersey City my entire life. 
Uh, so the reason why we stayed in Jersey City for school was because there was a very popular at the time Islamic school where they basically taught classes in Arabic. Uh, they taught you Islamic studies, how to read the Quran. They had like Quran recital contests where they gave like iPods out, loaded with Quran, you know, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was like that kind of school. Uh, so it was a great place to learn Arabic, but also not be living in Egypt. They were just so concerned with raising kids outside of the culture that they were comfortable with. You know, yeah. my parents, when they came uh, from Egypt in the 70s, they were so culture shocked by the amount of sex in like advertising and in movies and media. And they were also really taken aback by just like the systematic racism that was you know, that, that kind of came from like the top, the highest levels of office in this country, mm -hmm. like the presidential office. So they were so cautious about the way that they were raising their kids where they wanted to make them feel as if they weren't a minority. So they, they thought, okay, we have these Egyptian kids. We want them to be Muslim, good Muslim kids. We're going to send them to an Egyptian Muslim school where there's like three other Amens in your class <laughs> so that you won't feel like a total alien. Uh, didn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, you... you you end up going to that school, and then you, there's after school, right? You go to the playground, you go play at the park or whatever, and you're being exposed to all these different kinds of cultures, especially yeah. in a place so diverse as Jersey City, where everybody's from somewhere. And, uh, you know, you watch TV. I was watching a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know? <laughs> it's, it's impossible to shelter your kids in that way. So what ended up happening was they created an atmosphere hoping to shelter us from this outside world. And in doing so, they sheltered themselves from the outside world. They never really got to assimilate in the way that we did. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, we kind of drifted apart in a lot of ways, where our parents were living in a parallel universe in the same house. And so there was like a lot of issues about closeness, priorities, uh, things that we liked. I loved music. My parents never even heard American music, even though they spent most of their life here. You know, yeah. they like stay away from it or tune it out. So it's all, it's, it created a lot of obstacles for us to, to, to actually emotionally connect with each other. How many and brothers? And I had, like, I didn't have an experience like that, but I yeah. went to a very, like... Uh, you went to an Orthodox Jewish school. I went to an Orthodox school. Jewish school. sounds exactly school. the same. It, well, it was, like, a little bit more, like, they, they wanted... Orthodox Jews in particular, like, especially... They, they really want... There's, like, an emphasis on, like, figuring out the secular world while like still maintaining your Jewishness. So there was a little bit more of like, you got to know what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, so By the didn't, way, it didn't exactly work for you, right? It didn't, didn't work at all for me. Totally it was from, from Judaism. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was nice to like, uh, not be the only Avi also, but like, uh, <laughs> but that, uh, that didn't get me very far. Um, yeah. but, uh, Wait, I was wondering how many how many siblings do you have? So I have three siblings. I'm the youngest. Uh huh. I have two older brothers, Muhammad and Ahmed. Yeah. And then a sister, Hiba. Yeah. They're all. She's the Harvard doctor. She's the Harvard. Do they're all Harvard doctors. In Are you serious? Way. They're all brilliant geniuses, valedictorians, overachievers. And but I'm you, over here. But you were hyped by by your brother Muhammad, right? Yeah. As being the talented one in the family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't remember it that way, <laughs> but that's how he describes it. Okay. It um. Yeah, they all got like straight A's. Yeah. They all got into great colleges. They all got scholarships. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, all right, well, they got to figure it out. So I don't need to like impress our parents anymore. Uh huh. I, I don't have to be a doctor. 
what would I rather do? I'd rather watch movies, watch TV, play video games, and <laughs> get absorbed into media world, right? Uh, and so I spent a lot of my time, because I grew up with, with the internet in a way that they haven't. My, mm. my sister is four years older than me, and my brother is seven years older than me. So When were you born? I was born in 89. Okay. Barely, barely an 80s baby. It doesn't even count. But uh, So when the internet came out, I remember it because it was America Online, and it was that loud, annoying, yeah. crazy sounds. And like the dying screeching eagle. Yeah. <laughs> when you're like logging in. For yeah. some reason it had to be dying for you to connect. Yeah. Uh sacrifice an eagle to connect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I remember distinctively before YouTube there was like Ebom's World. Mm-hmm. And before that there was like Newgrounds.com. I remember that one. You're the man now dog. Like all these weird, kitschy websites where people could just make cartoons and upload them. And that became my first obsession. I was like, I want to make cartoons. Uh-huh. So I, uh, my brother denies this, but he helped me get fake software, like pirated software. Yeah. This is back well, before Adobe bought everything. It was Macromedia Flash. Uh-huh. And I sat there and I was playing and I made cartoons for fun and would upload them. And none of them were as good as anything else. But it, there was still, it felt, I felt satisfied in knowing that I could like develop this skill eventually and become like a cartoonist or animator yeah. or a filmmaker. But then that, that took me to, to storytelling and then I had a whole different trajectory than say my, my sister who was only interested in like doing really well in tests mm-hmm. or my other brother who was only interested in like healing the world, right? He became a, a nurse because his job, he wanted his job to be like jumping out of helicopters and saving people. And wow. He became a paramedic, and now he's a, a nurse anesthetist, which is like the hardest version of nurse. So uh-huh. it's like, it's crazy. They all just became these like superstars when it comes to like having a, a really difficult and cognitive and rewarding career. Yeah. Um, but for me, what came naturally was just storytelling and media. What did your parents make of you like not doing? I mean, I, I just know so many like kids of mm-hmm. immigrants who like do like the like a doctor thing or like a real professional yeah. thing and like I'm just wondering how they handled that mm-hmm. for you so funny story when I was graduating high school I'd already decided that I wanted to become a filmmaker I wanted to make short version uh, like films and do short tell stories. I didn't really have an idea for like media journalism yet at that point mm-hmm. there wasn't really a strong um, you know, effort to create news content for the web. Uh, so at that point, I was like, I'm going to get into advertising. I'm going to make commercials, but mm-hmm. they're going to be inclusive and there's going to have kids like me on it. Like, yeah. it's going to be cool. Um, I really wanted to make Burger King commercials because I like toys that came in the in <laughs> their version of the happy, the kids' meals. <laughs> and that was like my dream. So I, I wanted to go to film school and I got accepted into an art school that had a film program. I made sure that I was at a an, university just in case I like tried it and sucked and wanted to change my mind. I wanted to like start over. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to do as much as I can without letting my parents know what I was doing. So they were like, where are you going to school? Like, what are you going to study? I was like, whatever. Like, I'm going to school. I forget what I said. I think I just told them I was going to TV school, you know, <laughs> but really I was going to art school with yeah. a TV program. Yeah. And then the first day I got there, they canceled the TV program. Whoa. <laughs> they canceled the film program and they got rid of all the film teachers. 
Jeez. that feel like some weird kind of destiny? Like like someone's telling you something? Like, That's crazy. It, it felt more like a curse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like, damn it. <laughs> they wait, of course, after they collect the tuition and you buy right. all your, you, you like spend up. all your all your time during the summer to buy a MacBook and then yeah, you yeah. have right, this right, MacBook right. to make films and you show up to film school and they're like, sorry, what else do you want to major in? Right. Uh, so I was already in this film program. I was already in the art program. So I had a choice. I could either wait a semester, take the semester off, I could maybe go back to work or do something else, and then come back and try a different program, maybe at a different school, maybe get into a different film program, or, uh, and that would risk like letting my parents know that I was like doing art, yeah. uh, or I could just play along, see if I can go to art school, and then make a career in film or TV out of it. So I picked, uh, I wanted, I, so I picked majoring in color because I figured there's a lot of color correcting involved in like filmmaking and that's already tools that I was familiar with. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. Still going to tell my parents I'm going to film school or like not film school, but just like TV school uh, until my graduation came around and then there were like it's art school. So it was like a mix of dancers and painters and hippies and healers. That was like a thing, right? Okay. What school was this? This was Mason Gross School of the Arts. It was part of Rutgers University oh, okay. in New Jersey. And... Uh, yeah, so like half the kids that I was graduating with weren't wearing shoes. They're all running around barefoot. <laughs> My mom's looking around and she's like, "What kind of school is this again?" <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, if she's gonna do anything, I had like the capping out. I was like, "Yeah, yeah. it's art school, by the way." <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, what, well, uh, I guess congratulations." <laughs> yeah, it worked out. How does that go down with your family? Like, did people like do people have it out or like? Like, were there arguments about this afterwards or like, no, it's just kind of like unspoken, like, okay. Yeah, at this point, you're like 21. Yeah. You haven't lived at home for four years. I was dorming the whole time. At this point, my mom just wanted to be nice to me enough that I'd want to come home and like have dinner with her, uh-huh. um, which sucks. I don't want her to feel that way, but it's true. I was kind of a shitty kid in my teens, especially just taking everything for granted and you don't understand me, mom. Like that kind of stuff. I so can relate. Yeah. Yeah. I think literally every, every <laughs> I was dickhead. I was such an asshole. I, I regret every minute of it. I really wish I, you know, it's funny. Yeah. You saying that like, just reminds me yesterday. I was talking to one of my oldest friends mm-hmm. about what an asshole I was in high school and college. <laughs> and, and then I was telling my wife about the conversation and I was try, I was thinking about like the word regret. And I was like, because I, I was about to say I really regret how much of an asshole I was, mm-hmm. and then, but then I reframed it. I'm like, I don't. Re- I guess I don't really regret it because I definitely learned like how not to be as yeah. much of an asshole now. Yeah. So like That's the way I point. frame it to myself is like I'm I'm simply not proud of it. But <laughs> <laughs> you learned from it. Yes, yes. I have. That's I was. Sure. That's funny because I was just talking to a friend who was like not enough of an asshole and kind of feels like they're paying the price now because they just stuck to what they thought they were supposed to be doing and didn't uh, push back enough and now it's like what do I want what do I really want uh-huh. you know yeah, so yeah. there's something good about being an asshole <laughs> it's like a consequence to being like, exactly what your parents want you to be yes yeah, yeah I think so yeah I've seen that for sure um, before so we want to get into what happened after college but just mm-hmm. to rewind for a second because so much of your podcast um kind of touches on violence and yeah, and yeah. fighting growing up and stuff like that. And that was a big part of my life, except that I didn't fight. <laughs> I got really? fucked with and, um, but I was afraid of fighting. And this is weird because like I'm six feet. I was always pretty tall. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and relatively strong and like wrestling with my friends, I could actually hold my, actually not just hold my own. I could win most wrestling matches, but for some reason I just was shook of fighting. And so I, I actually talk a lot about that on this yeah. uh, podcast. Yeah. And, um, but, but, uh, but anyway, like that's, I'm curious, like, um, how old were you when you got in your first fight? Do you remember? Yeah. My first fight was over who got to use the best broom to sweep the floor. That's cool. So that okay. There's a backstory. I promise. Way back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I was okay. um, maybe like fifth grade. Okay. Um, so, th- yeah, like lunch time you get like extra credit or extra points with the teachers Mm -hmm. if you like grab the broom and start sweeping after like everybody else and uh yeah i struggled in schools uh especially like trying to get good grades so i was always trying to get the extra credit trying to do the extra work to to maybe have it like balance out and and sweeping at that point i saw it was like dumb work like i didn't need to use my brain for it so i'll do that right um and then as soon as everybody caught on everybody wanted to sweep so they can also get like the extra credit and the extra f- to curry extra favor with the teachers. And there was one good broom and all the rest were like crap, like falling apart. Like the stick was like kind of loose and, or <laughs> maybe it was like a, a broken stick. So you had to like sweep with more of your arm strength. So I was like, I started this trend so that I should be using the best broom. Yeah. Y'all are late. <laughs> and yeah, there was a kid who was bigger than me who was like, trying to snatch it out of my hand and that's when i was like no like this i felt entitled to that broom for some reason and so i think i shoved him first and then he shoved me back and then i don't know we were just kids so like it wasn't like we weren't punching each other we were more just like headlocking each other (laughs) yeah trying to trying to grab each other and bring each other to the ground and uh i don't know if that counts as a fight but it was definitely like my first exposure to like that mentality of wanting to dominate someone because I felt like under attack myself, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, the games that we played in the playground started changing. We weren't just playing catch anymore. We were now playing this game called kill okay. where it was like, it was basically wall ball, uh-huh. but if you messed up, you had to uh, like basically spread yourself out against the wall and everybody playing took turns hitting you with the ball, you know? <laughs> Playgrounds, um, yeah, you know, like so. The games that we started playing were became way more violent and yeah. physical. We also played this game in the mosque because the mosque was all carpeted, so you can pray on it. But we would use the carpets to like attack each other and like try wrestling moves on each other. Yeah, yeah. So we would uh, we would play this game called Kill the Man with the Ball, uh-huh. which is exactly what it sounds like. There's just a ball. Yeah, and whoever has the ball, everybody's chasing. It's kind of like football, but like. There's no <laughs> points. It's just you get just tackled. I, I used head. to play Golden Man with the ball. Yeah. It was it, the greatest game ever. It was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a lot of Truly fun. Truly horrible, but also the greatest game ever. Yeah. So, so like violence became uh, a part of our, our our like language and our expression. Yeah. Well, and I feel like boy, yeah, boys, like that's, that's kind of the way we play yeah. with each other. There is like, there and is then, some And then like there. bloody knuckles happened mm-hmm. and then it started getting like way more intense. And then we played this other game called Bruiser, which you just try to like bruise the person as hard as you can. So we just take turns punching each other in the shoulder or in the rib, just trying to see who can, yep. who's stronger, right? I, I just, 
you telling saying that reminded me of like this fucked up memory when <laughs> when I was in fifth grade, there was a game kind of like Bruiser but even more sadistic, where you would put your wrist on the table and somebody would take a pencil eraser and rub it oh, on your wrist uh-huh. and you would just see how long you could withstand could the pain. You? Wow! And like I was trying to be hard, so yeah. I just like and. Literally, like he rubbed my skin straight off, and I was just gushing blood. And I was like, like in the moment, I was proud of it, and then afterwards, I'm like, what the fuck? How, <laughs> like, how was that being a man? Like, yeah. I, if if anything, I was a bitch for just sitting there Letting while someone rubbed my skin off. You know what I mean? Wow. But yeah, and I had a scar. I mean, it's finally faded, but I had a scar on my wrist for like literally like a decade from that. It was crazy. Anyway, that's that just so reminded crazy. me of something. Just like the fucked up games we would play. I'm you know? so happy we never played that. <laughs> <laughs> An eraser just on your skin. Yeah, yeah. Just, that hurts. Yeah. I mean, we did like Indian burns. Yeah, burn. Indian burn. That was like the next level Indian burn. Yeah, that's <laughs> like way harder than. By the, by the way, uh, just. Just recognizing that we probably shouldn't be saying uh, Indian, Indian burn. burn anymore, but that yeah. was what it was. <laughs> that literally was what it was called back then. Uh, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, um, it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, lang- like violence became a part of our everyday routines, right? Um, and yeah, b- through that, like violence when you were angry came more natural. I think I don't think it would have came as natural if we weren't already fighting with each other constantly for fun. And, um, you know, I didn't get into a ton of fights when I was a kid, uh, but I did. And I wasn't proud of those moments either, but it almost felt as though, you know, you, you notice that the kids who didn't fight back and kind of retreated or tattletailed or did all these other things became perpetual victims where they would pile on and, and continue to abuse this one individual because they, you know, they were perceived as not being able to handle it. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of sadistic because it's it's like they almost, the kids smelled blood in the water. So that's something that I observed. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so ready to fight was because I knew that if I didn't, mm-hmm. someone would use that as an like they, they would be less afraid of bullying me because they know that I wouldn't fight. Back. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. And, and that's that's like um, when I look back on it, that definitely was what happened to me yeah. because. Um, I mean, first of all, I think I think I was afraid of fighting for two reasons. One, I mean, I was just shook of getting bloodied up, right? Mm-hmm. But two, particularly for some reason, I was scared of getting punched in my face. I don't know why, but like that. Terrified. It seems like it would really Even, hurt. No, but but <laughs> I wasn't scared of someone rubbing my skin off. Or yeah. Anything. But but anyway, but two, I was actually afraid that I would be strong enough to really fuck somebody up and hurt somebody yeah, else, yeah. and I didn't want to do that. But definitely, I was marked as soft and had that victim mentality and, and there was blood in the water, you know, they smelled yeah, the blood. Yeah. In and I'm not, I'm not trying to say like, I didn't have some traumatizing childhood where I was like horribly brutalized or anything like that, but I was fucked with constantly. And it's funny because I used to think that it was because I was one of the white kids, but there were other white kids who didn't get fucked with. It was definitely because I was the white kid who Would had not that, stand up for himself. Had, just had that yeah. target on myself because I didn't stand up for myself. So this is something I think a lot about. I, I have a son now, and he he's 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 only two and a half, and this is just a phase that most two and a half year olds go through. But he's now like the aggressor on the playground. Like, <laughs> oh no! He'll go up and like just make kids cry and hit them and stuff like oh, that. Oh man! And I know that it's just like a passing thing, but it's made me reflect on questions you've raised several times in in your podcast about like, um, you know how how to talk to your own kids about violence or you know how you would rate you know if you yeah. ever have a son how you might raise raise him with 
with regard to these questions. And um, I don't know, it's still something I'm I'm trying to trying to work out. It seems like you're still kind of ambivalent about like like because it seems like both the fights that you got in mm-hmm. and also the the you know the some of the the physical stuff you got from your parents growing up. Yeah, you're yeah. still kind of ambivalent about whether or not like that was such a bad thing because like on some level it seems like you feel like there were valuable lessons in. Yeah, I mean, just what you said right now about being afraid to get punched in the face, right? Like I think that was I was I mean everybody's afraid of getting punched in the face like because that's like a very vulnerable part and you, you've like bumped into your nose maybe with like a ball or something and it, it stings it hurts mm-hmm. and um, so the first time I got punched in the face was by my dad. Wow. Uh, I don't think he, he didn't hit me like hard, but just enough to like deter me. I was like really young. I, I maybe was like coming up to his like belt as far as like how tall I was. So I asked him for a dollar because I wanted to get like a Snickers bar, or, like a candy bar. Uh, and he said, sure. But he was like on the phone busy. So I was like, OK, I'm just going to put my hand in his pocket and fish for the dollar and pull it out. And then he, he looks down and he sees me fishing into his pocket so he reacts. He just kind of swings his fist, hmm. and it hits me square in the nose. And I sit there, and I, and I can't even cry from like how, like the sensation. I feel like numb. I'm like checking. I'm like, am I bleeding? I'm not bleeding. Uh, like my face feels like it's on fire. So, I mean, at that point in my life, I wasn't trying to be a crybaby because like I, I had two older brothers, and they didn't let me be a crybaby because they would just be like they would abuse me for that so yeah. I, I felt like I needed to just toughen it out and and not show my dad that he hurt me and and, and kind of just like sit with myself and accept the fact that maybe I shouldn't have been doing that and, and maybe I deserve to get punched in the face like that those are the things that I was thinking about yeah. when I was a kid like did I deserve that wow this hurts don't show people that it hurts yeah deal with it on your own yeah hide it because yeah. I don't want people to know that I, I'm capable of being hurt uh, especially my brothers. So, uh, and and also they did that too. They, they didn't want to show each other getting hurt because they didn't want to like make themselves vulnerable in that way to each other. Uh, they were a lot closer in age, so they fought a lot more than I did. But that was the first time I got punched in the face, and that kind of helped me in the playground because the next time that I got punched in the face, I didn't have that that same sense of shock. You're a veteran. <laughs> I, I it, like it hurt, but it made it didn't. I didn't lose my focus. I wasn't in a, a million miles away like I was when I got hit in the face the first time. And after that, you, you can kind of sense what amount of pain that people can withstand in the playground. And if you feel like you can withstand more, you feel tougher than them. And, if, right. and it kind of spirals. And Not that I turned into a bully, but I wasn't afraid of getting into a fight or if somebody was stepping into my face, I wasn't afraid of equally stepping up so that they, to see if they're bluffing or not, you know? Yeah. Uh, most times when that happened, they'd stop Yeah. or they'd walk away and say, oh, you're lucky that yeah, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. blah is here. I don't want to get in trouble or, oh, you're, you're lucky that I have to go meet up with my friends at uh-huh. Burger King. Burger King's going to come up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like they, you know, that happened most of the time. Uh, and I think... Had I not been punched in the face by my dad, would that would that have been my trajectory? Would I would I have instead been still afraid of getting punched in the face and then being uh, and letting other kids know that? So now all they have to do is make me flinch, right? And then they got the best of me, and that's it, right? So, uh, and I'm, I worry about my my brother's kids because he has twin boys, 
and they're being raised in a very different circumstance. Like you talk about being uh, at a school that's like mostly black. I went to a school like that after I left the Islamic school. I went to a public school in Newark that was, um, I want to say like half black and then like 35% Latino and mm. then like 15% uh, something else, mm. anything else. Uh, so in that, in that world, there's that, that sense of like machismo culture was everything. You know, mm -hmm. you, you needed to, uh, to stand your ground and alert other people to the kind of man that you are in order to like prevent them from seeing you as a target, yeah, as an easy target. So I worry about my brother's kids because he's already made up his mind. He doesn't want to use violence on them at all. He doesn't want to raise their voices at them. I worry about eventually them going into a space where there are other kids who have grown up a different way, where they are conditioned to find weaknesses and use the weak people, not to call them weak, but just uh, be using the vulnerable people to, uh, you know, to make themselves tough, to yeah. let other kids mm -hmm. know not to mess with mm -hmm. them and kind of show some kind of dominance. Yeah. Are they going to become, um, you know, tough enough to hold their own or are they going to be conditioned into believing that everyone around them just wants to play play nice and um you know every everywhere should be like what they have at home where it's like this safe sanctuary space yeah which we all know just doesn't Life that's doesn't not like the that. world that we live yeah. in it'd be nice it just isn't so. but i mean you you really narrowed in on this on the on the um opening episode of of uh, man up your podcast mm where you had a, a boxer who lost vision in one of his eyes, right? Yeah. From, from uh, getting into a fight at a bar. And, and this guy wasn't just any boxer. This was like one of the future great boxers, yeah, like yeah. who had an incredibly promising career. And, um, but uh, uh, Olympic, Olympic style class. Boxer. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the, he, he kind of, uh, the, the last word he had was kind of, you were kind of trying to challenge him about like, um, does does a man really need to get into a fight? To, yeah, yeah. Like, can't can't man? You know, like, isn't manhood more about, um, you know, coming into a maturity where you're helping, you know, the people who need your help and stepping up in that way? And he was like, No, you got to fight. He was yeah. like, You got to fight. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it it, it was an interest. I really enjoyed that one because it just it just brought up a lot of um, questions for me. And I, you know, one thing I think about is like is there a way to thread the needle mm -hmm. where you can walk away from fights while not being a victim? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I wonder yeah. like, like for example, like if I enrolled my son in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? Where like supposedly what I've heard about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is that like somebody could be the most muscular mm -hmm. fucking giant on the planet and you could be a little shrimp yeah. with a pot belly but if you know brazilian jiu-jitsu there's an 100 percent chance you're going to kick his ass right <laughs> yeah and um and you know like let's say my son knows brazilian jiu-jitsu knows that if he needed to he could but still is the kind of person that is like nah i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna de-escalate and walk away i wonder yeah. if that could be a way i don't know i'm just that trying to, to figure future, out like right? there, is there a way to thread the needle where you don't have to fight to, to yeah. prove that you're a man you know i think i think it starts with discipline i mean obviously i don't have the answer i i like I look back at my childhood and I worry how much of it is left over in my current personality. Like I feel, I like to feel that like I'm grown, uh, but I'm, I'm not in a place where I, 
I want to be as a man, honestly. I'm like, I'm still trying to work to that goal. And I, and I love what you said about like being capable of walking away as being like the ideal outcome. And that should be a thousand times, a thousand times with you. I think, I mean, I'm not a father. Uh, I haven't had that privilege yet. It's not my time yet. But I've, I've thought about it a lot. And I thought a lot about the the social conditioning required to discipline someone enough so that they know the circumstance before they walk into it and the power that you're giving someone when you allow them to win in a standoff. And I'm conscious of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably in, in, more ingrained in our culture than we want it to be. But it is. And I think the amount of discipline it takes for a young person to to find a new way, like you said, to... to like forge their own path. Like forge something. their own path yeah. of like that and be comfortable in their masculinity yeah. while at the same time not turning themselves into a victim. It's, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of an impossible scenario for me. I mean, it also depends on the circumstance. And I think every kid has to find their own way into maturity. There's no like cookie cutter way to do it um but i think teaching them to fight so that they are capable is smart because it's just inevitable not that everybody has to fight or is going to be in a situation to fight it's just um it's it's a useful tool to just know so that you don't become a victim i think it's especially probably know. true for i don't know i wonder if it's different for um people who are in the power group like white males like you know than it is for or or you know white christian or white mm -hmm. non-jewish males right mm -hmm. like groups that aren't marginalized like i wonder if like for groups that are marginalized immigrants you know people of color trans people jews now mm -hmm. <laughs> for the first time in our lives like oh it's like slightly iffy to be jewish in america so but like i wonder if it's different for for because i have to say like i don't Avi looks a little bit more Jewish than I do. I think <laughs> I don't like read as Jewish to a yeah. lot of people. Like I wouldn't fear like unless I was like rocking a yarmulke, like <laughs> anyone would attack me or whatever. Yeah. But I don't. It's funny. I don't actually feel that sense of like a fight is inevitable. Like I kind and maybe it's because I'm a white dude and like I just. Uh, other than that, special circumstance where I was a white dude in an all black school. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise I walk around in a white dude dominated society. So I don't, I actually don't feel that kind of fear that of, uh, of an inevitable con confrontation, like the way that, um, you know, the guy who, what's his name? The man who was on the first podcast, Eric Kelly, Eric Kelly boxer, yeah. was saying like, it's definitely going to happen, you know? And I, it's funny cause I, that part didn't fully resonate. Cause I'm like, well, it doesn't really, I don't know. I don't walk around with that kind of like eye over my, over my shoulder anymore yeah, yeah. like I did when I was a kid. But Fighting's I such know. a weird thing because it's just like, it's not about being, like winning the fight. Like there's always someone stronger than you. Yeah. So like that would be a myth. It's not like you need to feel prepared to like, you'll, you'll never win all the time. It's, but if you're, if you walk, if you couldn't stand up for yourself, that means something, right? Mm -hmm. Versus uh, trying to stand up but get getting your ass kicked. Yeah. It's just a weird, it's like what it means when to be able to fight, like what it means personally. Like if you just think, well, if I go down, I'm just not going down as a victim. Like, I'm not sure what, what that like 
substantively means for you like either yeah. way you get your ass kicked but like one way you feel a little bit better about yourself i'm trying to think back to like a recent memory of a time where i had to fight um okay here's a here's a scenario that happened like maybe three years ago so it's been some time but it's still like a, a fresh memory that i have uh a friend of mine are hanging out at mccarran park in brooklyn mm-hmm. it's a really nice neighborhood now like yeah. the border between williamsburg and greenpoint very affluent neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, we're, we're minding our own business. We're kind of going walking down. It's like 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing I know, I feel something whiz past my ear. Some, somebody had thrown an umbrella at my head. Whoa. I turn around and I see anywhere between 10 and like 14 kids. And I say kids, but they're probably like teenagers. Yeah. Uh, maybe like 17, 18-year-olds running full speed in my direction saying fuck them up fuck them up go grab them grab them so <sighs> my instinct like it like i've been in that situation before yeah uh just because in newark new jersey rarely ever are there like fights that are one-on-one uh-huh. you know what i mean uh so when it like your odds are like zero you run so it wasn't about like showing like machismo or yeah. being like tougher at that moment I was just like about like self-preservation, right? So I, my instinct is to run. My friend also runs. We're running in the same direction. I run out into the street because I figure if there's like traffic, I can like use that to create some distance between me, me and them. Yeah. Uh, he runs just straight down the sidewalk. So they catch him. Oh, oh, uh, I, I, so what I do is I, I turn around and I see him on the bottom of this pile of all these kids stomping on him. Jesus. Uh, we don't have a, there's no reason, there's not like a thing that we had to, something we can run from or anything, we didn't choose to be in this situation. Yeah. So I turn around, I'm like, I can't leave him like that. Yeah. So I, I run back, uh, I, I, they're like smaller than I am, I'm probably, I have like 10 years on these kids, I'm like yeah. 26 at this point. So I grab one from like the center mass and just lift him and then just toss him and I like say something corny, like get off of my friend and like <laughs> toss him. Uh, and then another kid like throws a punch at me. I kind of just eat it. And then at this point, they all kind of shift their focus onto me. And there's a lot of them, right? And they're all kind of like crowded around me. McCarran Park is, is kind of bordered with a fence. So I put my back up against the fence. Defensive modes covering my face, covering my vitals. Uh-huh. Uh, and then after like a minute, maybe like like 40 seconds of that, um, one of the kids like, all right, let's go, and they all kind of just run off. Wow. As that was happening, and that's it. Yeah. Did you have like, uh, like, did you have any conscious thoughts? Like, what if this shit lasts ten minutes? <laughs> like, how long can I take? Like, I'm curious. Like, having never been in a situation where like, um, it's a ten on one, and yeah. I'm getting bundled like that. Um, what uh, what was going through your head? Like, like did did the, like. I feel like I would have been scared I was going to die, possibly, like if no one intervened. I mean, I was kind of waiting for someone to intervene. I remember thinking that because this is Brooklyn. Yeah, a lot of people there. Yeah. A lot of people are just kind of walking around. Um, So I was waiting for someone to jump in. It's kind of a crowded street, but nobody does. Traffic's just moving like normal. And then after, I think at that moment, you're not really thinking about like, what can I do? Like, in, on our walk home, you know, I'm thinking, 
oh, I should have threw at least one punch. <laughs> I should have done this. I should have made some kind of impact. Yeah. But it it was all over in like a second. Yeah. Like it was just at that moment, it was all about protecting my face and protecting my my gut. And, and that just sounds like a pure adrenaline moment. Yeah. Like how and it was over in a second. Yeah. And then after they ran off, peeled my friend up off the floor. He had he was wearing glasses, and his glasses were wow. like cut into his face and it was like a little bloody i wasn't beat up at all yeah i was like very fine um i don't know how much of it was my instincts from getting into fights from like when i was younger or how much of it was just straight up like defensive mode that we all like humans have but uh i was like ready to go home and he was like he, he grew up in a very like nice neighborhood very different background than i did um also like a, a white kid and he was like i gotta call the cops i gotta file a report i'm like no man i'm tired well yeah. i got i got you a, a flintstone band-aid if you want it <laughs> you know my my perception of him was you're showing weakness stop yeah, it just like tough it out yeah yeah uh and his his perception was a crime was just committed we should find justice yeah and then eventually he's kind of blinded the cops do come Somebody I think down the street called the cops and they're like, okay, uh, get in the car. We're going to drive around and we're going to see if we can find these kids who like attacked you. Eventually they do. Uh-huh. We pull up on these kids. They're all kind of running away in the same direction. I remember one of them had like a giant like Mickey Mouse t-shirt. So I recognized that. And the cop asks me, hey, are these the kids? You have to be certain. And I look at them and I see they're like panic and they're freaked out. They're flanked by all these cops. The cop lights are on. And I see myself in them as those kids who used to just brawl. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, nah, there's no way I could be certain. And my friend, he's like not wearing his glasses. He can't see anything. So he's like, if he can't tell, I can't tell them. We can't be certain. Even though I was. Does your friend know that you like kind of, <laughs> that you? I don't think we ever talked kids. about it. Um, No. He like went home to his girlfriend that night. I just kind of like laughed at him, um, but yeah, it was it was just all this like toxic. My, my I mean, even though it was like just a few years ago, I still had a very toxic perception of what uh, what kind of man someone was when they weren't ready to fight or pretend protect themselves or weren't capable of. But something. even with him, it's, it sounds more like it's after the fight. Like he's like breaking a rule by whining about it. Yeah, like by like getting the principal in this case the cops though and yeah like, exactly and it was looking back on I'm, I'm, I'm an asshole for thinking that you know and it's not fair i mean i kind of hear what you're saying it's, no <laughs> but it's wrong it's wrong i should but you also did something i mean yeah. first of all like you did two humane things one was that you went back even though you knew you were going to get fucked yeah up. that um and mm. that 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 a lot of people wouldn't do yeah. so props for that but two you um you know, you saw that those kids, I mean, they were probably egging each other on, mm-hmm. like, um, who know, you know, who they knows scared, why, they, they but were they were scared, yeah. and, and like, had they been arrested, like, it, it could have, probably wouldn't have, like, taught them a good lesson and improved their lives, like, it probably yeah. would have, like, made things even worse for them, so I feel like, you know. Yeah, um, like, whatever would have happened to them, I think, yeah. would have been worse to your fr- than what happened to your friend. Yeah. I don't know. It's like hard to, that's a tough position yeah. to be in to like judge. Like the NYPD. Yeah. It's, it's stigmatized yeah. for a reason. It's stigmatized for a reason. Yeah. But, um, we, we need to like, move, we get, yeah, move we on. could keep talking about fighting. No, but I think just to put like a, like a, a little neat bow on this, yeah. I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think 
you know, another thing I've just been reflecting on as we've been talking about this is that um, uh, whether or not, you know, like, uh, I mean, there's always a possibility in New York City you could get jumped, I guess. But, yeah. like, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't live in a particularly bad neighborhood, bad, quote unquote, air quote, neighborhood. <laughs> Uh, and, um, you know, like I, I, I'm not, I'm not really worried that, uh, physical fights is going to be a, a big, uh, 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 you know, possibility, um, in my life, mm -hmm. but there's constant nonviolent confrontations that happen all the time. And there are bullies, there are just psychological bullies yeah. mm -hmm. and there are bullying bosses and there are bullying family members right. and bullying friends and like. So this is not just about fighting with your fists. Right. Obviously, it's 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 about you know. Um, yeah, standing up for yourself, standing yeah, your ground. Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah well, okay, I won't go into a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> but just we should we should get to the advice question in a second. But can we just can we just like? Yeah, I mean, I want to hear about how you got yeah. from. So first of all, um, if you can explain like this kid who was like both sort of like into fighting or I don't know if you were into fighting, but like there's like that yeah. side of you and then like wanting to go to art school and like graduate with a bunch of like barefooted hippies. Yeah. And like, can you square those? I mean, yeah. people can be complicated, but I just like, um, those sound like very different sides of a person. Yeah. I love that you asked that question. It's, I think this is the thing that most people are confused about when it comes to uh, kids growing up in the inner cities who who do have, like, records, who do... Um, like, I got lucky. I never got arrested for fighting when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids do. Yeah. And then they end up not being able to go to college. They might they right. might not... They, their whole lives are stunted from, yeah. those, from that experience. So I was the, one of the lucky ones who never actually got in trouble with the law. Um, so... Yeah, what, what I had these ambitions, and, and everybody's complex. Everybody's sophisticated. Everybody, like, you, you'd be surprised. Um, just to give you an example of someone who I think, like, had a, bit, a big influence on me. Mm -hmm. I, I played football when I was uh, in high school. Mm -hmm. And I played, like, all kinds of sports. But football, for me, I, I loved because it was so organized and cognitive and you had to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. uh, and I loved that. I loved being in a row and having a job, mm -hmm. you know. It's not just running around hitting people. It's so much more yeah. involved in that. But uh, not to go into too much too, too much of a tangent, there was um, a linebacker who I kind of like. He was so much bigger and stronger than I was, so I, I looked up to him. He was like my my, my football mentor. Yeah, he was um, an ex blood member, a gang member. Uh -huh. uh, in Newark, New Jersey, that's common. Most kids uh, in in the high school are either involved in a gang or were involved in a gang. So, uh, what I found to be so compelling about his story is that he was trying to get out of the gang. They nearly killed him for it, but he eventually got out. And at the end of it all, he wanted to become like a punk rocker. Oh yeah. Like that was his ambition. He wanted <laughs> to just like play the guitar. Uh -huh. I was burning him CDs uh, uh -huh. of like Avril Lavigne uh -huh. because my sister who was a genius. Just curious, what race was this guy? He was black. And he wanted to be a punk rocker. His name was Tyrone. Yeah. And he, he, he had like such a, a beautiful, dream that I think um, that like I think spoke exactly to the types of people that are in these circumstances yeah that every n nobody there 
I mean, not to not to ju- I'm not going to generalize. Uh, he was in that circumstance because he he was born into it in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, he had troubles at home. Obviously, he had troubles in his neighborhood. Obviously, troubles at school. Uh, but in his mind, he was a beautiful, sophisticated person that wanted peace and security mm-hmm. for himself and for his family. And I think that's true of everybody growing up in those kinds of circumstances, including me. I, when I was growing up in Newark, wasn't thinking about only fighting and getting along with my friends. Right. I had ambitions at home and I wanted certain things out of my family and for certain things for my family. So it wasn't odd or, uh, you know, out of, out of place for me to want to, to do cartoons and to like play with computers. Um, you know, in this school that you had to like walk into uh, using metal detectors mm-hmm. and every, everybody had like their particular metal detector that they were assigned to to get searched for mm-hmm. every day. Um, there was like a Dungeons and Dragons club that I was like <laughs> a part of. Uh, you know, people were like really into acting and there were circles of people like rapping and expressing their poetry in that way. You know, so it was like a lot of creativity and a lot of energy, beautiful creative energy. And in the end, we all... We're, we all recognize that we were all in the same boat together and that by li- uplifting each other, we can up- uplift, ev- uplift ourselves. And that was something I think that was, um, that I learned in school in Newark, in public school, that I didn't learn at the private school. And mm-hmm. that's something that I think that has informing, informed my, my passion for the, the podcast Man Up because now I want to uplift my brothers uh-huh. by, by having them, by allowing them the space to be vulnerable and you know, I think for for from for my mindset at that point, even though fighting was a big part of my life, yeah. uh, and fighting was a big part of like that culture, that didn't prevent me from having larger ambitions and and career and 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 informing the world about you know what I perceive to be the truth. That's kind of my my motivation for wanting to get in the media. So one one of the things that I think is striking about the way you narrate man up mm-hmm. is that you <clears throat> always end an episode in a highly vulnerable place where you're like, this made me rethink something and made me want to, yeah, you know, be, you know, more, um, a better listener or a better, you know, more, more sensitive or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But that's such a, um, it's, it, I mean, honestly, like, at first, it almost made me like a little bit uncomfortable to hear it, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm praising you. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> no, discomfort like, is the goal. <laughs> yeah, because you're not used to, you're just not used to a man, um, you know, being in being like uh, so earnestly um, kind of like committed to like moral improvement yeah, and like self-examination just, just emotional improvement. You know what I mean? Like self-examination, like... What one of the things we joke about, like in the in the podcast, like like um, in in earlier versions of what we were thinking about when we started this podcast, yeah, we were thinking yeah. about doing something similar to Man Up, actually, before we even oh, no discovered Man Up. But but um, but uh, but like the, the the podcasts that exist out there for men, mm-hmm. a lot of them are just like basically workout tips and fighting. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all of the self-improvement is just yeah, about how to yeah. be as hard as possible. And in a Here's way, like diet tips or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In a way I feel like, um, like, uh, again, don't, don't take this the wrong way, but I feel like your podcast is about trying to encourage yourself and other dudes to be more soft in certain ways. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously even the word soft 
we no, can redefine. I totally, <laughs> yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Um, I never really had that conversation about violence and that, that how violence and pleasure overlap. Hmm. And that made me think about the ways that we, we, we talk about sex in a, like my circle of friends. We use words like smash, mm-hmm. words like, uh, like violate. And mm-hmm. it's, it's like a very aggressive yeah. thing that's also supposed to signify pleasure. And even the girls that I'm around use those kinds of that, that kind of language when they're describing something like sexy is like sex, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's about what impact that has on us. Now all of a sudden, uh, we have this humongous issue of sexual violence yeah. in our community everywhere. Right? Every community is kind of like reconciling yeah. with this within like the shadow of the Me Too movement. So it's one of those things that in order to better understand where it comes from, I need to consider my own. Uh, relationships between pleasure and violence. Mm-hmm. And, but the goal has always been for the listener to think about their own relationship right. with pleasure and violence. And hopefully, on the other end, they're doing some kind of reworking and repairing on their end, too. Have, if that um, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, so... It's like super lofty, I know. No, like, no, no. No, no but I mean, the first thought I had was just like... Um, there's a reason why there aren't that many shows like this. Most dudes are shook to do it. <laughs> How did you get over like I I am just taking a wild guess mm-hmm. that it must have been a little bit scary when you first thought of this idea like shit am I really going to do this? Am I really going to do this? Um, yeah. Or did it not? I mean, how, no, how did totally. you hype yourself up to actually do this? I'm sure you guys experienced the similar thing when you guys are like pro- t- taking on this topic. Right? I yeah. feel uncomfortable every episode because no. I'm like policing. Like, what am I going to say? I mean, I'm also a therapist, so like, I'm used <laughs> to like guarding what I say. It's like yeah. I'm not used to disclosing. But like, yeah, you sort of have to. It becomes a little bit more like on the front of your mind. Like, what is okay to say, and what yeah. should I keep to myself? My yeah. strategy. You know? Which, which I mean, I, I totally make fun of myself about this. My strategy has just been to lift like insanely heavy weights so that I can actually be physically stronger than I've ever been. <laughs> so that at least I'm like, well, at least if I'm yeah. like, you can bench this much, like I can't, uh, then I can't possibly be a bitch if I talk about vulnerable things on the podcast. That's you know? like, it's funny that like, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, like, um, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, Terry Crews like nobody can ever say that he's like being weak <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. cause he's like being like very emotional in interviews lately you know or like um, Barack Obama the most powerful person in the world right. at one point when he like cries and talks about his relationship with his wife nobody can say oh he's soft it's like it's such a yeah it's a funny thing that we think we have to do right cause yeah. everyone's tenderness and softness like you, you shouldn't have to you don't have to justify it right yeah. like you're entitled to your feelings no matter uh, how much you can deadlift, you know? I, I feel that 100%. <laughs> but you're right that there is there was a mental block that I needed to uh, to overcome. And I think it was so scary. It's still scary. I, you know, to be honest with you, to be honest with you guys, I think a lot of that confidence comes from just growing up Muslim in America. Yeah. Like growing up as some kind of hyphenated American where a lot of the ideas that people have of you are already wrong from the get-go. So you almost feel as though... Uh, I almost felt like I I already had the tools necessary to tell people that they were... that what their ideas of me didn't matter to me. Like I, I already had the ability to kind of skirt past people's judgments uh, because I'm just a Muslim guy in America. You know, for example, 
Uh, I love giving examples because it's just easier. So You're a good storyteller. <laughs> yeah. So this is a true story. Uh, someone approached me from behind, tapped me on the shoulder, and just straight up asked me with full confidence, hey, are you Muslim? And I'm like, oh, no, he said, are you a Muslim? Right? That's to quote. Where him. was this? Muslim, like that? Like, <laughs> Wait, can yeah. you set this up? Where was this? All right, I'll tell the, I'll tell this whole story. Okay. <laughs> so uh, when I first started working at Slate Magazine, my job was a photographer, videographer. I was just there to provide uh, like visual assets to supplement stories that other journalists were working on. Uh, so when the Republican National Convention was happening, I volunteered to go to Cleveland with the other journalists and take pictures and shoot video for people. So the goal was uh, other like journalists would be on camera interviewing people and I'd film it, edit it, put it online. That was my role. We, got, we were there for less than like an hour. We, weren't even, we didn't even have our credentials yet. We were there the day before the convention to get our credentials and there's this gigantic line of all these journalists waiting to get into like through security and get onto the premises. Um, in that line, someone from behind me tapped me on the shoulder and asked me. In, so, I, so I turn around and I see this person who tapped on my shoulder and it's full-fledged like cosplay, like crazy outfit, has like all these fake medals, Quaker hat, Quaker outfit, like night, like a like a 1700s. Circa like a colonial, like, like guy. a colonial guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a pilgrim. Like a pilgrim. Yeah, okay. Like okay. a pilgrim. Okay. And he goes, very seriously, "Are you a Muslim?" And I think to myself, like, "Oh, wow!" I was expecting this, like, because it's a Republican convention. Biden wasn't expecting it so soon. Uh, so a little bit of my Newark sense comes in, and I, uh. I take a step towards him, and I get in his face, and I'm like, "Yeah, what of it? Uh. What do you care?" Uh, and his response was. Again, with full confidence in front of everybody. Oh, well, I heard that Muslims uh, worship a pedophile and that Muslims mistreat women and beat their women and that Muslims are homophobic. Or it's like to went the laundry list of all these, pre, all, all these preconceived ideas of who I was before he met me. And like, that's not the first time that happens, you know, it's just like that's just par for the course. Um, it's a lot easier when that happens when it's someone not a cop who doesn't have a gun, you know, so it's comfortable. Uh, so this person, who's dressed as Thomas Jefferson, mind you, <laughs> tries to, uh, you know, point out that the person that I idolize or respect the most has, like, committed some, like, uh, in modern days, like, committed some kind of, like, atrocities that in modern days would be, like, be seen as bad. Um, he points specifically to... Uh, the story of Aisha radiallahu anha, who was the, um, people say she was like the child daughter of the Prophet. Um, but, you know, as a Muslim person, you can like look into the story and, and recognize that it was like a political marriage. And at this time, like all the leaders, political leaders of different tribes were like trying to get people to marry their daughter so that they can connect familially not just politically and like strengthen those allyships something that happened in Europe something that happened in Asia it's like yeah it's like I mean also I'm pretty sure yeah. the Old Testament has like tons the worst of relationships <laughs> uh, right so Jews yeah. and Christians both have the same issue yeah but like when we think about yeah. like what made the prophet Muhammad great we're not thinking oh yeah well he had a young wife right. Right. Uh, so you know I tried to explain that to him and then I was like okay well you dressed as Thomas Jefferson 
Thomas Jefferson has a very long history of like not only slain slave ownership but slave rape. Yeah. Who gave, and his his slaves gave birth to many of his like bastardized chi- children. Right. And that's like documented fact. It's in the Thomas Jefferson Museum in Virginia. Yeah. Where they've already accepted this. And he's like, "Nope. Nope, never <laughs> happened. You made that up." And the whole line is full of journalists and it kind of everybody's laughing and I kind of took the wind out of his sails at this point he's kind of feeling a little a little less sure of himself and that was kind of it was documented on camera and that became my my job at the Republican National Convention I was just somebody was like oh that's what you should do so I started walking around on camera and just asking people hey I, I'm a Muslim person what do you think about Muslims in America what do you think about Trump's yeah. plan to uh, not allow Muslims to enter the country. This was before he revised his Muslim ban into a travel ban. Uh, you know, so I was just asking them questions about that and asking them to consider how this might make Muslim Americans feel. And that was my, my first venture into being on camera and to directing the conversation rather than just documenting another journalist to tell those stories for them, uh, tell, them tell those stories for themselves. And part of that was was to make myself vulnerable on camera. I'm like honestly imagining myself in your shoes and can feel my heart pounding and it's not even real for me. <laughs> so I'm just wondering how, like that just Yo. seems like a really intense thing to put yourself through and to do it on camera. Then the shit that people will say with full confidence. Yeah. And then when you say, well, no, I believe in this, they're like, no, you don't. I know you beat your wife. Yeah, people are such assholes. And you're thinking about your relationship with your wife and like how, how much attention you... You, you, you pay attention to those stereotypes and the, how different you see your, yourself. But that doesn't matter to some people. Anyways, I, I see a lot of overlap between that project and the project that I'm working on now with masculinity because it's, it's kind of the same thing. I'm investigating where those ideas come from. I'm trying to figure out why we think that men aren't supposed to cry in the same way that some people believe that Muslim men are supposed to beat their wives. Yeah, It's okay, well, in pop culture... There's pop culture uh, influence. There's influence from, from music. There's influence from uh, our parents. All of these things kind of come together uh, to uh, assign us our roles as men. And we need to, as, as, res- as responsible journalists, and because you guys are journalists too, investigating this, uh, try to get a little bit deeper and try to understand why people believe this about themselves in the first place. Yeah. And in doing so, I've also accepted the fact that I have a lot of these biases too. Uh, and that I'm also uh, I'm bringing my own amount of trauma into these stories that I need to work through. So I thought it'd be an interesting way. It'd be an interesting uh, method to to help people deal with their trauma by first, uh, you know, explaining to them what, what I'm working through, mm-hmm. and then they want to like maybe help and they give me some advice and then they dig in through their own personal past. So then now they're telling stories that they never told since it happened when they happened as a kid. Uh, and and then that that's like the start of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Now we can actually talk about where those ideas came from. Yeah. Um, and to, I feel like yeah. Um, like whenever I have those conversations, I just feel like lighter. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it was a fucking relief. Like, damn. Like walking around as um, as a you know cis heterosexual male. You're a fucking prisoner so much of the time in terms of what you're 
what you allow yourself to even think and yeah. feel. <laughs> yeah. And then when you just do it a little bit, it's like, whoa, like it's I don't just know, one it's, less thing you have to keep track of. Yeah. <laughs> like, is this okay or not? Yeah. 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 Um, so true. When you've, um, what about like your friends from Newark that you grew up with? Mm-hmm. Like when they listen, like have any of them, I'm curious, like, have any of them given like tried tried to like razz you for this or or has the response been like, damn, I'm glad like like this has opened stuff up for me. What's the response been like from I'm I'm not exaggerating this number. One hundred percent of the people from from like my community who listen to it love it. Yeah. That's love awesome. it. Um they all are like begging me to put them on it. They wanna be <laughs> they wanna be guests on the show. You do uh, a good job of like repping your community <laughs> and your friends. It's it's everything to me. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Um, the one thing I need to be careful of though, is I need to, I don't know. It like part of the appeal for me in Newark is the fact that it's everybody who's there is like from there. Yeah. It hasn't really like that migration that happened to New York in yeah. the past few years has not happened in New Jersey so much. Yeah. Like Jersey city yeah, is overwhelmed, but Newark is still very much the exact same neighborhood I grew up in. And I'm mm-hmm. very scared that, yeah. of it changing, but yeah, no, but, but I'm serious. Every single person that's heard the podcast loves it and i think one of the major reasons is we're older now and i think it it's like a global phenomena where men are starting to wake up and realize that if we don't have these conversations the consequences are huge and mm-hmm. we're not only just affecting ourselves we're affecting the people around us and it's not worth it and that it's for our own benefit like it makes no sense to to allow ourselves to continue to abuse women in the way that men are abusing women around the world and that, you know, if you, like you said, like that, once that weight has been lifted, you're, you're a better person for it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm almost wondering now, now that you've like brought that up, how much of the people who are from Newark and listening to this podcast, how much their ideas about their own masculinity have changed. Mm-hmm. Because for me, it's, it's totally different. And I've only been doing this podcast for like, three months you know? <laughs> by the way the dishwashing episode i i just want to point that out as well <laughs> yeah, I really yeah. too because yeah. um everybody actually know, started doing the dishes it's so, so so i mean um i know men who have um been violent with women as probably mm-hmm. every man does mm-hmm. whether it's just domestic violence or sexual violence mm-hmm. and it's horrible uh but that's a minority of the men that i know but literally, I think I'm going to just put a number out there. It's not 100%. I'm going to say 95% of the men that I know, and I include myself, and not to call out Avi, but <laughs> yeah. I've been to his house and witnessed his <laughs> domestic situation. Um, like, outsource a lot of traditionally gendered tasks yeah. to the woman and just yeah. don't do it. And I do it too. And I mean, I've actually, like, a big change in my life because my wife. She works at the New York Times. She has a crazy cool. schedule and like I have a more flexible schedule. So I've I've started cooking, but like I and now I kind of like it cuz I gotten into it and just tried to embrace the role, but we got in so many fights. Oh, we've been together for a long time. We've gotten so many fights over the years of just like her being like, "Why don't you learn how to cook?" And I'm like, "It's not my thing." She's like, "Well, why isn't it your thing?" Oh, man. And I had to interrogate that like obviously it wasn't my thing. Because I was coasting on the patriarchal thing of like dudes <laughs> yeah. don't cook and yeah. people cook for them, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like just all these, you know, it, it's not just about the epidemic of violence. It's about the epidemic of like the patriarchy and dudes just 
just being lazy about social conditioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I could tell that we should dive yeah, into the yeah, question. Yeah, we should. Yeah, I, I don't want. We don't want to keep you for too no, much. No, no, no. I was yeah. just uh, okay. just making sure I got a, another interview at four. But okay, oh, yeah. Sure. So I'm, I'm happy, that, I'm happy that you brought that up because holy shit, yeah, dude. No, like nobody actually was doing the dishes. There was a guy. It was the ratio was crazy. Every, for every uh, guy that was doing the dishes, there were two women that were doing the dishes. And this is just something that's public. And this is one of the most woke publications on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's yeah. woke. Yeah. So it's like crazy. Um, so we, we, the reason why I like wanted to do that episode was because I also, when I do the dishes, it's, it's like an occasion. And like when I do it, I need my wife to know that I did it. So that, because I feel like proud of myself, but she'll just do it and I, I will never hear about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, she doesn't let me cook. I can cook a little bit, but she doesn't let me because uh, she thinks I suck at it. <laughs> but um, no, there's all these different, It's it's you're right, it's not just violence and it's not like these already like hyper-masculinized ideas of like what, like what masculine jobs are. It's like everything else that kind of comes along with it. And it's kind of confusing because it almost feels as though this is like the first generation of men to to like live through the uh, the um, the employment gap shrinkage, right? Mm-hmm. It, one generation ago, the the amount of men that went to go work and women that stayed home that was like everybody, right? Even my mom, yeah. Uh, she she even though she worked, she was still she was still expected to do all of the housework. And she was happy to because even she believed that that, that was like the that was the normal thing to do, but I think uh, our generation of men are the first ones. We have we have a real opportunity actually to like completely dismantle those patriarchal systems and actually divide the work equally. Like we're not we're not saying that we should do everything. We're just saying we should just be doing our part, and that is alone, honestly, to like smash the patriarchy. And that's exciting because the the impact that the patriarchy has on us is also detrimental. Yeah. Uh, for example, on an episode that I did, I, t- I talked to uh, this really talented writer named Cord Jefferson who talks about this time that he went out to dinner and he was meeting up with this girl that he really, really liked and really respected. And she was talking about, um, she like mentioned casually that before him, she had, a, uh, she had like a, a sexual relationship with someone. And after she like left something at, their house she couldn't get it back because she didn't even know his last name and he thought to himself oh what kind of man does that make me if i'm with a girl who's comfortable like not even knowing the people that she sleeps with right and that's not a problem for her you know that's not a that's not an issue that was putting her in a state of disarray or conflict that was putting him in a state of disarray and conflict and yeah. that was a negative impact that was one example of a negative impact that patriarchy can have on us as men and that's something that makes us vulnerable you know it's something that shouldn't make us upset or angry mm-hmm. that is and i think um the dish is one of those things like we a lot of people don't even know how to do dishes or don't even know how to cook or don't even yeah. know how to like take care of themselves at a basic level which sucks and i was i'm talking about myself i'm really i'm talking about myself i didn't know how to do laundry when i went to college and yeah. that was humiliating. Yeah. I, yeah. I know yeah. like super woke fathers who just do not change their kid's diaper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like my wife would not. Put <laughs> That's not going to happen. And it's not but even like uh, she's asking for yeah. you to do it and so she can like relax. Yeah. It's right. So that yeah. it's yeah. equal. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's. Yeah. 
Um, it sucks that our our legacy as men for so long, for so many generations, has been okay. There's there's women's work and then there's men's work, and there's no overlap. And I think we have a really awesome opportunity to shatter that that yeah, stereotype. Totally. Do you have to get out of here soon? Or what's no, your, he, he I got an like another half hour. So okay. I can so, dip at four and be... Okay, yeah. cool. So we better dive into this. Yeah, so technically this is an advice show. Yeah, um, <laughs> so we better really do some advice. Really, the advice is kind of the excuse uh, for, for, for the show, but yeah. the gimmick, but um, oh, but we oh. we always have a question from a listener, and Avi will yeah, read well, it for us. I feel like we should talk a little bit about the this question. Sam and I debated it a bit, actually, so I'm curious to like talk it through with you. Cool. Because like... I'm for it. <laughs> I, I feel a little... I we we weren't sure if this was a good question to use with you because it, it like the the question asker is I guess Muslim or maybe sort of like oh, formerly Muslim and I was like well is that like typecasting you or is that like good because like this is like Be- better me than a non-Muslim that's that, that's, that's, that's what, what we talked like, through shit, yeah. how awkward it'd be yeah. to ask like a Muslim specific question to a uh, you have, you have to, no to idea a white person how angry I get when I watch the news and it's like a panel of non-Muslims discussing Islam yeah, yeah. like yo it's we're so many of us here in New York yeah anyways yeah well and yeah. there's some interesting I feel like uh, based on what we talked about, it'll be interesting to get into this. Okay. Hey, ma'am, I could use some advice on how to address an important issue with my parents. I'm 32 and finally finished with medical school and work in a hospital in a big city on the East Coast. Good for you. I live on my own and I'm dating around, but not with anyone at the moment. Mm -hmm. My parents are immigrants from Northern Africa and are observant Muslims. Mm -hmm. They live on the West Coast where I was born. I'm not religious and I've mostly lived apart from my parents since going away from college. Mm -hmm. I was a quiet, studious, nerdy kid growing up and have changed a lot since I left home. The problem is that I feel a lot of pressure from my parents to one, get married, two, marry a Muslim woman, three, ideally marry a Muslim woman from the same country as my family. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to marry anyone, let alone even commit to monogamy. I'm interested in exploring my bisexuality. In short, there's a big gap between who I am and what I envision for my life and what my parents want for me. I don't know what to do. I think the tension is making me feel a bit stuck. I do date, but I haven't had a serious relationship. And I think it's because I'm afraid to tell my parents and live with their disappointment. Mm. I love my parents and want to make them happy, but I also don't want to have this decision made for me or to compromise what I want in life. What should I do? Signed, East Coast Atheist. Uh, Hell yeah. <laughs> so before, we like to try to, before giving specific advice, just kind of like talk through the larger dynamics going on in the, mm-hmm. yeah. the question, just kind of what it, what it brings up for you. And by the way, like, Maybe I, I don't want to put you on the spot, yeah. Avi, but um, but this is a huge issue in the Jewish community. Yeah, I yeah. huge yeah. issue in the Jewish community. Like some Jewish parents will literally disown their children if they marry non-Jews. Yeah, and um, yes, disown, they'll 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 do what is called sitting shiva. Yeah, like and you pretend sit shiva you're dead. for a dead person. Yeah, so they. They are dead. They are literally dead to you what? in the Jewish tree. And it's the most, you know, it's a horrible thing for a lot of people. But, but intermarriage is the intermarriage rates in the Jewish community are through the roof. Most Jews today are marrying non Jews, except for the ultra Orthodox mm-hmm. people in Williamsburg and places like that. Most <laughs> yeah. Jews are actually marrying non Jews, creating a huge fissure between. So I'm curious. Yeah. Avi married a non Jew. Yeah, my wife isn't Jewish. And I don't it think was I've a ever big asked deal. you this, but was it? It must have it been a big deal. It was a big deal in my family. Yeah. yeah. It Whoa. kind of, they were, they were openly upset. And I had, my wife and I dated for, uh, 
I don't know, seven years before we got married. So like, it's not like they knew. I think they had this fantasy that she was going to convert, and then she didn't. Um, right. That I should have said that's the hope. Yeah. That's the big yeah. uh, right. And it really it was very hard for me. It froze. Like we got engaged, and then like didn't do anything for a year because they um, were so upset, and it just kind of like killed my enthusiasm for like getting married and I had to and I I mean for me I don't I'm not to skip ahead to the advice but I was I more or less had to be like I need to do it makes me happy yeah. I need to learn it's an important part of like growing up that you disappoint your parents sometimes <laughs> and uh we'll figure out what our relationship will be but I know what I want in my life yeah um but it was incredibly painful and uh hard like obviously if I didn't do anything for a year that that was yeah, rough one. yeah <laughs> I actually, um, this is generally I'm, I'm super open, but I'm not going to go into this because it's, it's just still too sensitive in my family. Yeah. But I actually, so I'm half Jewish and, um, uh, a a lot of religious Jews think that if you're half half Jewish on your father's side, that it doesn't count, that it only matters if you're Jewish on your mother's side. And I married um, an observant Jew, not Orthodox. But actually, the way Avi and I know each other is my wife went to this um, Orthodox high school with Avi. Oh, dope. But, um, but, uh, but basically, um, it, even that, like me, I identify as Jewish. Like, I grew up celebrating all the holidays. Mm-hmm. Like, my, my grandfather and grandmother were Holocaust refugees. Like, oh, you know... Man all of that side of the family except for them got wiped out in the Holocaust. So I very much identify as a Jew, but I wasn't still technically Jewish according to the tradition that my wife grew up with. So it created a lot of tension. And again, I don't, I don't want to yeah. go, but it's funny, even in, even that created tension. So yeah. I can't even imagine how, well, is how it, intense it must be for this. I guy. guess maybe you <laughs> yeah. can I, not, I'm sure there's a diverse range of like how Muslims think about this but like can you give us some context for what this guy might like like is it as big of a deal as it is for jews in terms of like if you marry someone who's not jewish like does it mean the same thing so it's it's hard it's hard to to parse this because muslims are so diverse in how they'll like tackle this kind of issue yeah um i can tell you this it's changing and it's changing fast i think um, Muslim parents in especially on the east and west coasts are becoming very progressive very mm-hmm. quickly uh, you'd be you, you'd, it'd be really hard for you to find a mosque that's like any type anymore like uh-huh. it used to be when I was growing up at least there was like the South Asian mosques yeah. and the Egyptian mosques and the North African mosques etc cetera, etc cetera, the mm-hmm. black mosques the white mosques everybody yeah. had their mosque but now it's like everybody's everywhere. Uh-huh. And this all happened in the span of like 15 years. Yeah. And with that came a lot of uh, Muslims started getting introduced to so many different ways to be Muslim. Yeah. Um, you know, there's even like the mosqueless Muslim now, okay. which are the people who are kind of just agnostic. They still believe in a God, but they aren't convinced by the the strict practices. Like there's kind of like a... There, there's like a space for people to organize in every kind of which way. There's mm-hmm. even like uh, huge uh, 
organizations of like atheist Muslims, people yeah. who are like culturally Muslim, still want to celebrate the holidays, but they'll like eat pork instead yeah. of yeah. like that's lamb. basically that's what, like what, what we, we are. are. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's all over the place. Secular Muslims, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't want to get too much into this because he isn't here. But my brother married a non-Muslim, mm -hmm. and my mother was really upset not because she didn't want him to like re like just like s split the family or it wasn't about like precious i don't know i don't know how to describe it, it she the the source of her anxiety came from what was going to happen to the kids yeah. the grandkids yeah yeah she wanted like she came to this country and like i was saying earlier her focus was raising good muslim kids she wanted her kids to be muslim so bad that she worked extra just to afford the tuition to send us to her mm -hmm. private school when that wasn't like the smart economic thing to do. Yeah. So it mattered to her that much. Did she disown him? No. Mm -hmm. She showed up to the wedding. She was smiling. She was in the pictures. Mm -hmm. Both her and uh, the my brother's wife's side of the family talk a lot. They're on the phone all the time. Uh, she, you know... It like slowly but surely, my mother was finding a place in her heart for them. Then they had kids, mm -hmm. and then my mother was torn up again all from, from from the very beginning. It didn't. I thought she was wrong for wanting that, like wanting him to be with a Muslim person and wanting him to be in a place of being with someone who's like culturally the same, yeah, with a similar background. I. I don't think that it's a fair kind of pressure that they could put on them, but so many of them do. Them being like Muslim parents. Yeah, the parents. <laughs> but there was a moment that I empathized to her and I understood where she was coming from. And it was when we were all sitting at the table together, the whole family, both sides, and they were going to announce what they were going to name their first kid. Mm. Uh, so they picked the name Cameron, mm -hmm. which is a cute name. Sure. Uh, they live in Virginia. They wanted a name that people around there can like pronounce. Yeah. That's all that they were thinking about. My mother, she's from Egypt. They don't, she's never heard that name before. She couldn't pronounce it. She was trying to say it. She was like, Cameroon, Cameroon. Like she couldn't. Yeah. Physically, it wasn't, her tongue wasn't able to say the word Cameron. And she started crying because yeah. here's this, like she already felt distant from her son and now she's acknowledging the fact and accepting the fact that she's going to be even more distant from her grandson. Yeah. And this is her first grandson. Yeah. And she I'm cried. I'm like frowning so much. Yeah. That's she really she broke down in front of everybody. Everybody was like, yay, what a great name. We're so excited. And she's sitting there. She's putting her hand over her face. Her eyes are closed. The single tear is running down. Yeah. And she's, you can see her trying to rehearse saying the name and she can't. Hmm. And that's when my heart strained and I was like, yo, yeah, you, you shouldn't allow them to co-pilot your life. But I think that their feelings are valid too. Yeah. And I think that for someone who came from North Africa, they came and they're so afraid of losing their kids to like American culture. Yeah. And just raising kids that are so distant from them and they're totally different people. They want that relationship with their kids and they want their kids to be proud of who they are. Yeah. And seeing them leave the tribe in yeah. a way 
forces them to accept the fact that's an impossible task to do. There's so much. I mean, yeah. what you're saying just makes me think there's just like layer and layer of loss, yeah. like in this, totally. right? So, I think that's like in, in kind of any immigrant story, there's loss. And then like, right. It's like I, the friends that I have who's, who have gone through, whose parents, like, it's not even about religion. It's like marry someone from like the same yeah, community that yeah. we came from. It's like, they just want to keep it the same. Yeah. They don't want to like acknowledge, like we don't have that anymore. It's, it's going to be different and how painful yeah, every that's like a very evocative story that points to and, it, and also the fact that their kids are going to have their own ideas of who they are and who they want to yeah. be, and you can't raise their grandkids for them, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think my mother sees it as a failure on her part to teach her son to love his right. Uh, which is no. exactly what you hear from Jewish parents. Like they, they're like, I must have failed. Well, to that's Jewish the guilt. Love, <laughs> yeah, Judaism yeah. <laughs> in you because you married someone outside. And um, you know, I, I was thinking the Jewish thing is also slightly different because there are so many fewer Jews in the world than other um, major yeah, religions. Like Self-preservation. It's like 05 percent of the global population. So, yeah. and there's and after the Holocaust, obviously there's big anxiety about whether the Jewish population is just going to fade out for good. Um, but, uh, so there's all this extra layer, but the dynamic is still fundamentally the same thing of the parents feeling like, um, your embrace of the person you love is a rejection of them mm -hmm. and their values and, and your entire community. And it's just, it's just a really hard thing. Right. Like, I think we, we do need to get into the advice cause I, cause, uh, cause you have to go, but, yeah. but, um, but I think like, I, I don't have specific, like, here's exactly what you should do kind of advice. But I, I do want to say something different from, like, beyond just follow your heart. I mean, mm -hmm. ultimately, I think you should just follow his heart. <laughs> I think it's, you love who you love. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you can't just, like, force yourself to love somebody who is from the North African country <laughs> you are from. Yeah, who had, who, like so you love who you love. But, um, but yeah, I think hearing, hearing you talk about your brother and... Um, yeah. You know, just thinking about my friends who, who have married outside of their culture or religion and the tension it's caused with their parents. Like, I just feel like, um, you know, maybe there's a way to, there's just got to be a way to do these things um, uh, in a way that is, that is sensitive to, I, I just feel like there's a way to marry who you want to marry while mitigating the damage it does to, to your parents who you love, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, maybe part of it is just like, just really reemphasizing to your parents that you do love them and that you are, uh, you know, that, that this is not about them. That this is not about a rejection of them. And maybe, I, you know, again, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> I I think think it's, but, I, <laughs> but I think it's better than, I think it's better than being like, F you mom, I'm going to sure. like, following yeah. my heart you know what i mean i think it's one of the things that seems tricky and this person in particular is like it's not just about who they're like they don't want to get married or like they maybe want to be right. in some other like relationship altogether mm -hmm. um and i just my sense of like to make a broad generalization but like parents who like come from another country who have like a like what we might say like a traditional way of thinking about things it's like they are not going to think about it in any other way other than they failed. Yeah. And so like you can't you can't control that reaction because I think 
that's that's in my experience yeah. is the reaction that they the have. The question is like, where do you go from there? Yeah, what do you do? Okay, like they, right, that's how they're going to feel. Bisexual like atheist. Where do you where do you go from here? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have I have one bit of advice. Yeah. Um, and and I'm I'm noticing the differences between my relationship and my brother's relationship. Mm-hmm. I married uh, an Egyptian Muslim. And her family comes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And her family comes from the same neighborhood that my mom came. Oh from. man, yeah, that's and the dream. They, like yeah. have people oh that God. they know each yeah, other yeah. from like high school. It's like, it's crazy. I didn't plan it that way. I swear to God, <laughs> I just fell in love. Making up for those years when you were a, more of a rowdy kid. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> so, so it's like a stark contrast right right from the get go, right? And I notice my mother's relationship with her two daughters in law. She has three, but we're going to focus on the two. And how my mom feels comfortable switching languages. So now she feels like she has access to my wife that she doesn't have access to the other one because there's the first of all, there's the language barrier. Yeah. Uh, second of all, she is worried about like what kind of influence they're going to have on my son, which I think is kind of silly because at this point we've like left the nest, mm-hmm. but it's still a thing that you need to acknowledge because you, you, you don't want to invalidate her. You want to validate her. Uh, but the main difference that I notice is that uh, my wife is a lot less intimidated by inviting my mom to go like shopping with her mm-hmm. or like to go and like come over for tea or like go and do things together. Uh, that's something that, I mean, my brother also moved. He like left to Virginia. And right. that's probably one of the biggest reasons why my mother might feel abandoned by him. Yeah. Probably has less to do with the fact that he married a Christian, but more to do with that. Uh, but, I think just that that access and not leaving and not allowing her to feel abandoned, mm-hmm. I think is essential here. That's mm. that's the root. I think um, if if that's the direction you want to go, and you have to, you know, like you can't, like you said, you can't force yourself to fall in love with the person that your mom wants you to love. Right. You just need to make sure that you're doing what you can to reinforce the idea that you you're not going anywhere, you're not leaving, you're, the family's growing. And I think that that's probably what every mom really wants. Like they might be telling themselves that they want someone to stay mm-hmm. and be who they're supposed to be or whatever, but really they just want you to stay mm-hmm. and they want you to know that you, you love them and you, you're around for mm-hmm. them. Uh, so. so you're saying almost like have faith like in the like core of the relationship, like all the other stuff that seems important. Everything it's else like, is superfluous, especially like when it comes to Islam, man, like, Islam is so, like, vague. <laughs> you okay. know what I mean? Like, I, I've never read the Torah, and I'm going to beat myself about that later. But in the Quran, it's like... Um, I've never read the Quran. It's more so. poetic. <laughs> I've only read it in English. But. Everything is like, if you can, uh-huh. or if you're able to. Uh, I like that. You should fast the 30 days of Ramadan, which everybody you talk to is like, that's essential of the religion. Right. You can't not do it. But in Arabic, in the book, it'll say, If you can, if, you are, if your body will allow you to, uh-huh. if your mind will allow you to. Yeah. So I think all of these rules that we put on ourselves and we get defensive about, yeah. is that really, like, religiously, can you argue that there's one way to do anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when we talk about sharia, which I, I like, try not to yeah. because it's become so stigmatized in this country. Thanks to Fox News, yeah. those assholes. Yeah. But Sharia means path. It doesn't mean rules. Hmm. It's a it's a method. It's a it's a system of ideals, not a, a system of laws. 
So that's interesting. I really didn't I didn't know that. I mean, I I um have gotten really interested in Buddhism mm-hmm. in part because the the moral um rules that they they aren't rules. They're called precepts actually. Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like it's like you don't have to do this. Um but like try it out and see see how it feels and like yeah. you know and it's more like it's more like a suggestion uh, yeah which yeah. I like Judaism doesn't feel like no that. it's, it's definitely like, like, it's like you got to do this yeah no um, one's afraid of Talmudic totally. law coming after them so, though <laughs> so anyway we could talk I mean this is a fascinating question that we could like talk through for yeah. a long time yeah and I feel like the, yeah best but, of luck man. but I wanted um before before you go we just wanted to ask oh yeah. Um, if there is uh, a piece of advice that you've gotten from someone in your life, or it could even be from a yeah. movie or a book you read that you've carried with you and kind of returned to, that yeah. you want to share? Um, so, yeah, I thought about this because you sent me in the email to think about that piece of advice, and it's super corny. It's so corny, but it, it, made, it changed my life. Um, so I was a student at Rutgers and they, they have like these series of guest speakers come from, from all over the place and like give speeches. So they invited, I was like part of like this photography class. Cause I was like wanting to work on my composition cause we didn't have film, film school as I told you guys. Uh, so the, the, the person they invited was this photographer from Kenya named Boniface Mwangi, Boniface Mwangi. And he, his story is so tragic. He's like, country fell into civil war. He was like selling napkins like at a stall. So he sold everything to like, sold his business to rent a camera for like a weekend. Like not even to own it, wow. just to rent it. And he just shot a bunch of film and gave it to the newspaper so that they can publish it just because he didn't even have a way to, to develop it. And he ended up shooting some of the most captivating photos ever shot in my opinion just like the most incredible photos ever and that was like his first attempt at photography and i was like talking to him and i was like yo i'm so afraid of leaving my comfort zone and you straight up uh abandoned your only avenue for self-sufficiency you gave away your business to try something and he was like yeah I knew that I had to because no journalists were coming. It was too dangerous. And this was in my backyard. So he's like, I knew that if I didn't shoot it, if I didn't take pictures, uh, this would be something that whoever the government, because it was like a uh, a revolution, whoever took control would sweep under the rug and act like never happened. Mm -hmm. So he said he needed to document it to to hold the people who were committing those atrocities accountable. And, And then he was like, there's an African proverb um, that was like super corny, but I was like, whoa, this is dope. He was like, uh, the lion shouldn't rely on the hunter to tell their story. Mm-hmm. It was like something as simple as that. And I'm sitting here like angsty Muslim kid listening to like, you know, Mars Volta, like angsty music. <laughs> and I'm like, yo, if I don't tell my story, then who like who's gonna tell it for me? Yeah, Fox, I rely? Fox News is gonna tell. Yeah, me. exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not like Anderson Cooper on CNN was doing a better right. job. And that same month, it felt like fate. Egypt was having its own revolution. This mm-hmm. is during the Arab Spring. This is like 2011. Mm-hmm. And 
I was like, oh, fuck. Like, this is, this is the story that I was meant to tell because I had one foot in, one foot out from both cultures. I was like Egyptian and American. Mm-hmm. I speak Arabic and English. So I um, had a job at this point. Left. I told my boss I have to go. He was like, yo, this job won't be here for you when you come back. I was like, well, I got this camera. I'm going to go and I'm going to try and like shoot photos and tell some kind of story for an American audience so that they know that it's not just a bunch of Arabs going crazy, burning shit down. Mm-hmm. Like Anderson Cooper's story straight up pissed me off. He, he said that he people are chanting and they sound angry. And I understand the Arabic and they're chanting uh, like for freedom. Uh-huh. And he doesn't know Arabic. He right. shouldn't be expected to speak Arabic when he goes to like speaking to, to go document Egypt. Yeah. But the fact that there was no like outreach for a translator right. while they were doing a live segment and they're just gonna let this guy say they're chanting and they sound angry. Right. Like that's that's not that's not right. Yeah. And of course there's people in America whose only exposure to Arabic culture are gonna be Anderson Cooper saying these people look and they sound angry. So as an Arab man who doesn't see himself as an angry person, whose entire experience with Arabic culture wasn't one of anger, it was more of like poetry and art. Mm-hmm. I was like, I have to go and I have to document it. So I left. Wow. And um, I got some of the best pictures I ever shot in my entire life. And I wouldn't have done it without that advice. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with, with my career and the same thing with Man Up, the podcast, and with everything that I've done in journalism, it's all been, it's all been about um, adding my personal soul into the story, mm-hmm. like examining my own story so that I can make it more personal and hopefully inspire people to think more critically about their personal experiences too. So I credit Boniface for Yeah, not cheesy or corny at all. Super corny. Yeah. <laughs> super corny, but it's true. That's true. I feel like that's pretty good for this guy too because yeah, this you can only live your life, you know what I mean? You like you shouldn't rely on anyone else to yeah. take care of it for you. You got to do your thing. Yeah, there was definitely like a cuz like for especially for for a person from Kenya living in Africa. Yeah. There's definitely like that the the colonialist imperialist perspective of like okay these people are coming to conquer us yeah we need to tell our stories right yeah so i i appreciated it that in that way because as a muslim guy in america where there's it's it's like very polite table talk to just be like oh muslims hate us mm-hmm. you know that i felt like i needed to if i was gonna be a muslim in media journalism made sense thanks man can you yeah. just quickly tell our listeners where to find you on social yeah. media and how to subscribe to the podcast. So uh, the first thing you should do is subscribe to the podcast because it's, it's my soul right now. Uh, you can find it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's everywhere you listen. It's called Man Up. You can just type in Man Up Slate and it'll pop up. Uh, so please subscribe. There are some punks on there who aren't ready to have this conversation with me, like zero ratings, saying things like, really? oh, I don't need to learn how to be a man. I'm yeah, already sh- a man. <laughs> I know Zero. And I'm like... <laughs> Come on. Uh, so right now I got a four-star rating, and I would appreciate people who listen and like it to actually Let's bring it up to vote their conscience. <laughs> so I appreciate that as well. And uh, you can also just keep up with my, my, my essays. I'm also a writer at Slate, so you just type in slate.com slash amen, A-Y-M-A-N-N, uh, and see what I'm up to. Awesome. And thank you guys for this, dude. Thank hey, man, you. This is great. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I appreciate this. Right. I've been looking forward to this all week, seriously. All right, everyone, that's it for our show this week. 
Uh, as always, if you have a question, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to put your question up on the show. You can uh, email it to us at heymanpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail if you're brave. 917-426-4326. We can put it up on the air. If you just want us to transcribe it and not use your voice, let us know. That's fine too. But I think think it would mean a lot to other people to hear from a a real person instead of just hearing us read, read your words. So think about it. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter. Much more active right now on Instagram than Twitter, but hopefully going to change that soon at HeyManPod. And uh, could you just take a moment, please, like right now, or finish listening to me, and then right after, uh, we could, we'd really appreciate it. If you like the show, give us a five-star review. If you don't like the show, give us a five-star review because someone else might like the show and that would help them find it. Uh, and we'd really appreciate it. And all of these podcast sites, their algorithms, that's how it works. Um, a review, uh, written words would mean a lot too. Um, don't just keep your good feelings to yourself. Share it with the world. Thanks so much and have a great week. All right, everyone. That's it for our show this week. Uh, as always, if you have a question... We do not have the answers, but we will still talk about it. So get in touch. You can send us your question at heymanpod at gmail.com or even better, leave us a voicemail at 917-426-4326. I was being snarky when I said we don't have the answers. We don't have the answers because you have to live your life and life is complicated. But we have good ideas. I think we have suggestions that are helpful. So I think, I think you'd get something out of asking for help. I didn't mean to be so dismissive. Don't waste your time, but it won't be a waste of time. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter, HeyManPod. That's where you find us. More active on Instagram. We have uh, quotes from that week's episode. We have uh, some, sometimes we share th- some things we're reading or watching, things like that. Um, and uh, yeah. It's a good way, you know, just a good way to engage with us uh, and engage with the show. Um, And if you have a moment, can I just ask that you give us a review um, on whatever platform you're getting your podcast from because it really helps other people find out about the show. Um, And I think other people will really like it. And you could, if you like the show, that's just a little way of uh, of passing, passing it along and letting us know. You appreciate us. Feels good. Feels good. You should share what's in your heart. All right. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Talk to you next week. Bye.